Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do, even if the problem is right in your backyard. So I am here today with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? Uh, you know, it's we're getting closer to the election, so <laughs> every sure day is are. a little scarier. <laughs> well, this is perfect then, because this is going to be an episode about what you can do in a, at the community level. If you know, if you if you're feeling frustrated by national level politics, I'm very excited today to have Don Hebbard, who's actually a friend of the family and worked on a local effort here in the community that my parents live in that was incredibly successful. And so we wanted to talk a little bit today about local advocacy and local activism and, and what that looks like. So Don Hebbard, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do in in life and uh, and what you were involved in here in Franklin? All righty, well, that could be dangerous, but here we go. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'm, I'm older than dirt, so um, I have a lot of experience and uh, I'm basically a native of Delaware County, New York. Uh, my parents had three different farms here as I grew up, so I have an agricultural background. Uh, graduated from the local high school and um, continued on to college. The situation after that, you know, things kept changing. Like life is fluid, and you have to go with the flow. and And I'm a firm believer that if one door shuts, then a window or a door somewhere else is going to be open. And that's always been my case is that um, whenever I've had to make a change or desire to make a change, it worked out very well that the change was for the good for me and my family and, and many times even for the community. So in terms of longtime dairy farmer, we had a farm for 30 years locally here. I stopped doing that when I turned 50 because it got to be a lot of work and no money in dairy farming. And I've worked off the farm on various um, industry. Um, so we're talking most, the two forays I had industry, both were in the food industry, one at a local manufacturing plant. And uh, since part of my background was I started out in chem engineering at Northeastern in Boston, finished up at you know Cornell in uh, ag business management, I'm kind of a hybrid and I consider myself a, a jack of all trades, master of none but willing to jump in where needed. In terms of my personal philosophy on political activism ties directly to my personal philosophy on volunteerism, is that you're doing something to help others, uh, something that's uh, beyond yourself, but hopefully will do the greater good. And whether it's working in the local church or local community organizations and or in politics, you are doing something, hopefully, that will um, improve the situation for other people. And so I've had two forays, really. Going back to Cornell, I was at Cornell 69 to 72 as I finished up my degree. And we were right in the middle of the Vietnam War. That was my first foray. And that's probably going to uh, get a few people to frown. But we were um, very much um, active in trying to take and get 
the United States out of that conflict. That even involved um, coming back to our hometown over different weeks and months and having a visit at each of the local churches where we, my wife and I, we, we stood up and explained why we thought and what we were thinking. We did not always get the warmest welcome, but that's probably not unusual for anybody that's involved in politics. <laughs> so then the second foray really had to do with uh, locally here in Delaware County, but it started in Pennsylvania. It was going to wind up clear up um, in scary New York was a pipeline that when it first started being talked about in 2010, there were rumors and you started seeing trucks around with surveyors and you started hearing about uh, landsmen uh, talking to some of the local landowners, particularly the larger open track off the main road, uh, bigger landowners, um, about getting an easement for their property. And the general feeling was that, you know, that this is basically a pipeline, no big deal. It's underground, out of sight, out of mind, whatever. There wasn't a whole lot of resistance to it. And that started like in 2010, going to 2012. In 2014, another pipeline company chimed in uh, instead of Constitution. This was the Northeast Energy Direct. They chimed in that they would like to follow the same greenfield, the same path as the other one with the second pipeline. And then they probably made a huge political mistake is they mentioned that in the 125 miles from Pennsylvania up to New York, you have to have something to repressurize that gas to push it through the pipeline. And it was planned for Franklin, New York, a compressor station that is like a half a mile away from my house. Now, at the risk of sounding like a NIMBY, not in my backyard, <laughs> um, several of us you know, were upset about that coming through and we started to get active. So yes, we founded an organization called Compressor Free Franklin. And um, we went at you know publicizing, educating, you know, talking to people in groups about um, what effect it would have on a community, and not only that, but what effect would it have on the state, the United States, and the world? Because you know, fracked gas was the topic. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about that for those of us who uh, maybe live in big cities and haven't been affected directly by pipelines or compressors? What effect does that have on the community? What does that look like if the compressor is right near you and your community? Yeah. Well, it's it's not pretty. <laughs> uh, the um, the compressor station that was planned for up here. They'd made an offer for the purchase rights and some money exchanged hands on 113 acres. Um, and on that 113 acres, there would be two uh, monstrous compressor stations. But then the other thing that had a serious negative effect for us was everybody knows that natural gas smells like rotten eggs. It's one of the first things they warn you. If you smell gas in your house, it smells like somebody let the eggs go bad. Get out, call 911 and you know let the professionals deal with it there's that is a what they call mercaptans that they add that gives that characteristic odor and it's there for safety but it also like many of the chemicals involved in the fracking process it is a very harmful chemical and um, it's just not something that you need to have in your neighborhood and you know like anything else it's not all going to stay contained like you know good little things in the pipeline 
uh, there's going to be issues where it comes out. So um, that's one effect, just the, the pure physical disruption, whatever. You add to that, that there'd be all the, the, all the traffic and all the trucks and all the whatever to build that monster. Um, and then in addition to that, um, you're going to basically have in your backyard something that very possibly, if it ever had a leak, could blow up. And there have been numerous pipeline failures and things of that nature. So the other issue that it really does for communities, you mentioned about, Kelly, that people that live in cities, yeah, they very rarely dig through the middle of a city and put a great big buried pipeline. So that means, as I mentioned earlier, they look for open land, back out of sight, out of wherever. But where is most of that land? It's usually in impoverished communities. So you get into another whole ball of wax, the economic injustice. Where do most of you know pipelines, landfills, anything that is big and dirty and disruptive, where do they get put? They get put out into local communities that are low income, low political clout, and they're the ones that suffer the major effect. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I know in this community, fracking had already been a conversation that was happening, you know, and, and there had been a lot of dissension in town around people who wanted the right to frack on their land and people in town who thought that, that the environmental consequences could not be justified, should not be justified. And so you kind of stepped into the middle of this ongoing conversation. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Compressor Free Franklin approached that dissension, what you did to kind of to be effective while, you know, making sure that you continue to maintain some kind of community support and what and whether there was any pushback that you had to deal with and what that looked like. Well, you're absolutely right, Lila. Any action always has pros and cons, positive <laughs> effects, negative effects. And so, yes. Um, and then you have to reach some sort of a balance to like, what is the better good for the community? When you look at the rural areas like ours, um, basically the positives and a lot of, not a lot, but several local landowners did sign easements and say, hey, come on down. Because number one, you got paid for the easement. So it was an economic boost to your personal life. And then in addition to that, as you go along, that pipeline is not going to bother too much. I mean, our farm happened to have Marcy South major power line come down through from Marcy to New York City. It came across us. We weren't thrilled about that. We fought that as well, lost, and Eminot Devane took our land. But the thing is, yes, we could still crop under those <laughs> high lines. So for the local landowner that can have an economic benefit, there's not as much downside. But then you look at the relative ratios. Yes, um, if you look at a village of Franklin and 300 people, and you look at a two-mile radius around it, there might be 30 large landowners. So there's an economic uh, disjunction here between what's good for the public and what's good for the few people that are going to benefit from us. And so, yes, um, fracking was, Compressor Free Franklin got right in the middle of that very much. We did a whole lot of um, campaigning and educating and bumper stickers and signs and whatever to try to uh, stop the fracking part of it because without the frack gas, you don't need the pipeline. So I, it, it occurs to me, you've mentioned a few different things that you did, actions that you took, and it occurs to me that there's a, a 
bunch of different sort of tactics that you can take with an issue like this, that there's uh, just awareness, there's education about what's going on, there's potentially legal challenges, there's getting news involved, government officials involved. How do you decide sort of what what you do, the order you do things in, what you give priority to when there's so much you might need to do to take on a big issue like this? Good question. Compressor Free Franklin started out as a small organization with a half dozen of us of like-minded souls that could see some of the ramifications of it. And it grew to where we would have 40 and 50 people attending the meetings and we got a whole lot of local support. Now, then that local support, you have a couple of things going on. Now, as one of the founding members, um, we kind of needed to be a legal entity. So I here again, is somebody's got to lead. Uh, I literally set up Compressor Free Franklin uh, as a doing business, Donald Everett doing business as, so that we could have a legal entity that we can do stuff with and we could have a checking account that if we got donations, you know, we have a way of passing that through. And so, yes, we, we set up an organization. We got more and more support. And then, yeah, there were people that went on the radio. There were um, newspaper uh, letters to the editors. We did a lot of activism, went up to, you know, Albany in mass in a few books loads to lobby and do things. There were various events that you want to call. Um, and we, you know, we'd have even somebody come in and play some music. And the whole idea was to not just preach to the choir, to bring in new choir members. We, we got a lot of people. Um, we did a lot of fundraising, got, you know, got a lot of support. And we were able to do, you know, ad campaigns. We were able to do, you know, more posters, more uh, uh, road signs um, to try to raise awareness. The One of the things that I know is challenging in this area is there's not like a big media market here. The media market is split between a lot of different regions. This is a rural area where the local news comes from another town and the newspapers, aside from the local newspaper, which publishes like twice a year or something, uh, comes from another town. And so I'm wondering if there were some unique challenges, because I know like if you're in a city and you're working on an effort like this, you go and it, you go after the media really hard because that's how everyone finds everything out. Here, I think, you know, there's some other ways to raise awareness, like road signs and things like that, that are probably more effective. Can you talk a little bit about how you make those decisions? What kinds of educational outreach are effective in rural communities and how that's different than, it, you know, than, than in big media markets? Compressor Free Franklin was set up like on a consensus basis. We would discuss things and majority rules. I mean, even within an organization, you're going to have different opinions of what to do, when to do, how to do. So basically, we go by you know, consensus. And in the process over the years, yeah, we lost a couple of people that thought we should go in a different direction. Uh, we gained other people that wanted to go in the same direction. And you're absolutely right. Here in a local area, the media is almost a non-entity, you know, particularly with Internet news and things over the last even five to 10 years. I mean, it's been out there. The readership of the local newspapers is just about nil. A few people that, you know, subscribe to the Oneana Daily Star or the Daily Star out of Oneana that is one of the local newspapers that's a daily four days a week, not seven, but it's a daily. Um, and so you're you're very limited. You do also have the local radio stations. Now, a lot of people do 
listen to local stations in their car or whatever. So radio spots were a way of reaching out to a wider audience. You obviously do not have really good feedback unless somebody says to somebody, oh, we heard you guys on the radio, sound good. You rarely get that kind of feedback. So you're kind of shooting out into the dark, hoping that you're changing minds. And I believe that it does. And, you know, then you also, you hold rallies, um, you go over to the metropolitan area of Oneana and you, you, you stage things on main street, which we did rallies. And we did rallies up here uh, on the hill above us. I'm one of the local landowners that was willing to let us do that. So all you can do is, you know, put it out there and hope that you get response. Now, I think that, we did get response. Oh, and don't forget letters to the editors. You know, very powerful tool, even though probably as many people read them online now as in the paper. Um, but the point is, um, we did get quite a bit of you know, response, quite a bit of things. And then people start badgering the powers that be, you know, the local town board uh, for immediate things in our area. And then you start looking at your elected representatives. You go camp on their doorstep. You hand out stuff, you send them um, more and more information, and you just keep trying to roll that ball uphill. I remember from that era that there were there was a lot of great campaign art as part of Compressor Free Franklin as well. And I know this is a community that has um, a number of artists living in it. I'm also wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the kind of visual brand of Compressor Free Franklin came together because it was actually really striking and especially for a like a rural effort to see such effective campaign art. The diverse community that we have gives us a lot of different viewpoints, but the majority viewpoint is that people still want what is best for themselves, their kids, their grandkids and future generations. So yes, a lot of the local artists were on board, supported us, and committed to the campaign of how we could have um, a bigger presence and to a more diverse audience. So it was very helpful. And it's like I say, it's just one of many venues that you can try to use to get out to the public because in the public, there's a very diverse public. So the more diverse you are, the more likely you are to get some of them. So I want to talk a little bit about goals when you're doing a, a really local targeted kind of campaign uh, action like this. So, you know, if your goal is like save the environment, then there's like a million different things you're trying to accomplish in a million different places you can go. Was was this sort of a singular goal? Like don't have this compressor here where there are pieces to it. I, you know, how how would you measure if you were successful when you were successful, what that looked like? Yeah, initially, I believe it was very much a one focus goal. Um, stop the compressor, you stop the pipeline. And so we were very focused on that um, for at least two or more years. When that started to get to the point where we could see that there was um, the Northeast Direct Energy Direct Pipeline dropped out of the picture, they said, no, thank you, too much pressure, too, not enough gain, whatever. Um, and that put more pressure on the other pipeline, the original Constitution pipeline. And so when we could see that they were starting to, you know, bleed a little bit under the pressure, we did get involved and are still involved in other actions that all have related to the issue, primarily fracking and or countering that right now as uh, 
you know, alternative energies and even getting into the, the taboo area that some people feel uh, nuclear energy. If you're going to have green energy, you've got to have base load. And it's really hard to beat nuclear as base load. So we are still involved in various fronts. We're down to probably 20 very active people. Uh, we hear you know, we get followers on Facebook that say things and whatever. So we know people are listening and looking. Um, but yeah, we now have diversified since the original threat has abated. Now, let me back up and say that that original threat is not done. There's no reason that with some of the easements in place already, that somebody, when the dollar signs come big enough on fossil fuels, and they will, um, that somebody might jump in and say, well, let's put this pipeline back on the table. Um, so we're trying to keep people very aware that that could happen and, you know, keep watching for signs that if you start seeing new surveyors out there, double checking things, let the community know. And we will have to jump back on that as a main focus. And let me, let me jump in one more thing here too, is that as we were going from 2010 to 2014, I was getting more and more pressure from local friends and people, whatever, that um, I should run for public office. And so I did. In 2014, I ran for a seat on the town board. There are a four-year seat that with four of them, there's two in one year, then two years later, there's the other two. So I ran twice against two different incumbents to see about the possibility of getting another voice out there in the wilderness. Um, I didn't expect to make any major changes in the town board, but anybody that's familiar with local politics, at least our local local politics, is they're very much a one mentality board. They aren't diverse, they aren't whatever. So having somebody that yes, knows the farming community versus the four main members that are farmers and the fifth one that rents his land to a farmer, I do have some experience. Um, you know, I was, I was perverted by Cornell. People will say, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> basically, I've also worked in industry, so I do see the other side, and I do see some of the ramifications and how just saving the community for farming, which is kind of a dying industry, we need to be looking at other actions and other opportunities of uh, small industry, private industry, and fortunately, we're very much starting to see and upsteep in the um, work from home community, where if you're on the internet, you can work from anywheres and run your multi-million dollar business from your pajamas. Um, so we are seeing a large upkeep and uh, uptick in the community of that type of people. And oftentimes they are the more, I mean, liberal is kind of a modest, you know, overused term throughout there but they are people that believe that we should save the economy save the world and that we can do the two of them together actually this this was going to be my next question so i'm so glad that you brought it up because i was thinking about how franklin sort of has its own urban rural divide in a sense because it has the village of franklin and there's village houses and they have village issues and a village board and then there's the town which includes a lot of larger landowners and farmers and things like that I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about working with both of those communities in Compressor Free Franklin. I know that it's not on the scale of like 
Franklin versus New York City, but there are still often competing issues between the two. And I wonder if people had different priorities or different approaches depending on where they lived in town. I'm sure and confident that they do and did. Uh, the, <laughs> I guess it, it comes down to a lot of how you were raised and what you do and whatever. So the rural population that um, I'm, I'm multi-generational, I mean, that, that's not unusual. Our family is one of them because my, my son and my grandson both live locally now, as well as me and my parents <laughs> uh, and my two brothers. So, um, in fact, we could take over the town if we worked at it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, so you come back to, you know, looking at what's the best for me and what's the best for the community. And it is a fine line to walk. And um, both sides have their philosophy, their viewpoint, and their objectives. And they don't always meet. Um, that's where hopefully the art of compromise, which had to national level isn't working um, but hopefully on a local level yes um, you can discuss things and figure out things and then the hardest part is that after you get these people thinking and talking and maybe going a little deeper than they would have their, their original foray or them just ignoring the things how do you get them to the ballot box because basically for the majority of issues that we talk about Ultimately, it's got to come down to some sort of legislation. And um, on a local level, I mean, we've had forays to try to get renewable energy and the town opted out. New industry and specifically cannabis and the town opted out. <laughs> so how do you counter that? Well, you, you just come back around through and find other ways. For instance, this November will be on the ballot community wide. Uh, the ballot people will be allowed to say, yes, we would like dispensaries in Franklin as a new industry and a new business and maybe that could support the local economy. And some of these landowners now have another venue of a crop they could grow. And hopefully we get them motivated to come out to the ballot box and say yay or nay, instead of just sitting on the sidelines. Don, was there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talk about? Well, let me just say that, I mean, it all starts at home. If you want to change anything, whether it's in your home, your community, or your world, then basically you've got to start somewhere. And so, yeah, I think at starting in the home and uh, working with the people that you are, hometown, you know, the local guy you talk to or whatever, that you have been talking to him for 13 years now about, you know, maybe your viewpoint, we could maybe meet in the middle somehow, but you need to take it somehow reach people, make them aware, and get them to become involved. I mean, even if they become involved on the opposite side of the fence from you, that's okay. They're involved, but you need that discourse and you need that discussion or you'll never reach a compromise. I think that's such a good point that involvement, it, involvement breeds its own sort of success ultimately because it's how you get people to the table. So I'm sure that most of our listeners do not live in Franklin or in Delaware County, but uh, if they want to help the effort monetarily or by supporting you on social media, how can they do that? Hey, send a check. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, by and large, no, I, I think the best way that they could support us is to 
do things in their area for themselves. Spread the idea that, yes, you can make a difference. You need to be involved. Um, we here locally um, have a good core and we can reach out to more people as we need them. Right now, things are fairly stable, waiting for the second shooter drop. But anybody that hears this that wants to do some good for somebody, start as local as you can and go off. I mean, nobody's going to run for president without being in some other office except for one person. Um, <laughs> and we basically, you can edit that. <laughs> uh, we might not. But, basic, <laughs> but basically, yeah, the best way to support us is to do things for yourself and the people around you that you really can reach. Because quite frankly, reaching out and sending a check, yes, it's helpful. Yes, it does some good. But it's not the same as showing up at an event or writing a letter to the editor. Well, Don, thank you so much. This is really, uh, it's inspirational to, uh, you know, I think we get really lost in the national news and the things are never going to change. And thinking about how you can make a difference, a real, true difference at a local level is, is really inspiring. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, share what little I know. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. Justice.